Welcome to Books That Work, the best and most useful bits of business books. I'm Anna Hughes and my professional purpose is to help people love their work. But it's as a group, it's how can we attach that insight to the practice and the people that we work with on a day-to-day basis and what's the implication for them? Because ultimately, we need to be connecting humans to the numbers and the insights that we're collecting. Dr. Selena Fisk is author of I'm Not a Numbers Person. This is a book designed to help us make good decisions in a data-rich world. Books That Work is all about providing practical stuff, useful information to make work better. We've covered things like culture, various aspects of leadership, flexible work, well-being, burnout. But I'm Not a Numbers Person stood out to me as a really important addition to all this to help build our data literacy. Understanding numbers is, after all, a key part of everyone's role, every leader's role, and data is everywhere. Knowing that and tapping into it to make better decisions and better understand what's going on in our work worlds will help us make a difference because we can actually use evidence to back what we're doing or planning. Dr Selena Fisk says a numbers person is someone who understands the metrics, can read what they're given, looks for trends in the data, and can communicate that data to others. She says they have conversations about action, are future-focused and solutions-orientated. They think slowly and critically about the data they have. Numbers people are just those who enjoy seeing evidence of their impact and knowing they are making a difference. Doesn't sound too bad to me, so let's start to build our data literacy and ability to be that sort of person. In our I'm not a numbers person speed read, I'm going to reel off some key definitions and concepts to add to our understanding of data before we talk to Selena in more depth. Let's start with being data informed or data driven. Data-driven organisations are those that are really ruthless about the numbers. They move staff on if numbers aren't met, they change product lines to increase the market share, and they make callous big decisions based on what the numbers suggest will work. Selena suggests organisations do not want to aspire to be data-driven, because data can never tell you the full picture. Being data-informed, on the other hand, is when you use numbers and you rely on them to provide information about where you're going and what you need to improve. But you also include your understanding of the context of people, of the financial climate, of market demand, culture, and the decision-making environment. You make decisions that are informed and influenced by the data. So, to understanding the numbers. To build data literacy, What sort of data might we be exposed to? Well, quantitative data is usually freely available in organisations. This is the numerical data that can provide an objective snapshot of what you're investigating quickly and can be shared through averages and trends and visually. There are two categories of this sort of data. Discrete data, this is the information that falls into the categories of whole numbers or broad categories. Things like the number of people who work for you or the number of products you have for sale. Continuous data is the data that can take on decimals, so information such as profit margins or percentage growth. Quantitative data is relatively easy to collect. The downside is you can often have too much of it. I talked to Selena about causation and correlation and triangulation of this data in a moment. The other main type of data is qualitative. This is generally not numbers and you can't easily summarise or prevent this information in graphs or charts. 
there are two broad types of this sort of data. Ordinal, this is information that has some sort of order and information can be ranked in some sort of way. For example, asking people whether they agree or disagree with a series of statements. And the other type is categorical, which has no set order. An example might be the different types of products you offer. You have access to comments and text, data that gives you detail and description. It provides additional context and helps you come to the why behind your quantitative data. How we interpret and use this data comes next. So let's just kick into our chat with Selena for guidance on these parts of the book. So really delighted for this Books at Work episode to have Selena Fisk and her beautiful book, I'm Not a Numbers Person. Welcome, Selena. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Anna. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, really looking forward to talking to you. So first off, we always start with where in the world are you and what's the view out your window today? I'm in Brisbane, Australia. Um, and my view out the window today is that it's finally stopped raining so I can see some blue sky, which is lovely. Um, but there's a whole lot of air plants on my fence that I'm looking at. Um, so they make it very interesting every time I look out the window. What are air, what, 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 what are air plants? Yeah. <laughs> air plants. So they don't need soil to grow. So they're hanging up. Um, you have to water them, obviously, and look after them. Um, but they're just hanging up on the fence and they just keep growing and they don't have pots. Right, I'm going to have to Google that. <laughs> Learning something all the time. Right, so we're talking about numbers and we've done our little summary. Um, and with Books at Work, we're looking at the, the practical and useful things for people. So really keen to dive into the qualitative and quantitative data piece. And there are two concepts that you talk about in the book that I'm keen to explore more. The first is around correlation versus causation. So what's the difference and why, why do both of these things matter? So it's really important that we actually know the difference. Um, correlation is when two factors move in a similar way and there seems to be a relationship between the two. Now, um, that some of the examples that I use in the book is there's a funny kind of amusing correlation in some ways that the more movies Nicolas Cage acts in, uh, the more drownings there are in swimming pools. Now, what that means is that the trends and the numbers of the movies versus the number of people who drown in pools, those, those metrics move in similar ways over time. And so it looks like one thing causes the other, but it obviously doesn't. So correlation is just the fact that those two things have a similar relationship, but there's not necessarily any actual relationship or cause between the two. Causation is different. So causation is when we can pretty definitively say, okay, this thing is causing this other thing. And in our workplaces and at home, it's quite hard to actually get to a really clear causation of one thing causing the other when we're talking about numbers and data, because we only really get to the point of causation after like years of research and investigation and, and many studies and empirical research um, to get to that point. So yeah, sometimes people assume that one thing causes another, but it doesn't always. So it's more often probably correlation rather than causation. Great. And another kind of jargon word that I hear numbers people use, very importantly, is this thing about triangulation. Uh, so can you explain this and what, what the benefits are of, of triangulating data? Yeah, um, so triangulation, and I mean, the, the clue's kind of in the name, really. It's when you use three or more pieces of data 
um, to look for trends and to inform your decision making and your actions. Now, it's beneficial because it allows us to kind of look at multiple sets um, and the trends that are happening across multiple sets rather than just focusing on one. So we know that, um, you know, I do a lot of work in schools and we know that standardised testing, for example, is one point in time assessment of a student's ability. It's not necessarily a perfect measure at all. But if we can collect other sets of data about their ability or about a similar kind of focus area, then the judgments that we can make about them and their skill is um, it, they're more reliable and it means that then the, the trends and the things that we notice in it are more likely to actually have an impact and our actions are more likely to have an impact because we can see it across a spread um, of results. So in the same way, like with personal finances, if I was talking to you and you're getting you to think about personal um, financial position, you wouldn't just look at the money that's in your transaction account. You would think about, you know, mortgages or personal loans and credit cards and all of those other things to make an overall kind of judgment or decision about your financial position. So yeah, always three or more pieces of data. So in a work environment, how do you how do you apply that? How can you make sure you are triangulating data? Yeah, so it's, it very much depends on the type of question that you want answered or the area of your focus or, um, I guess, inquiry. So if you wanted to look at, say, within your business, how um, if you wanted to look at, say, staff experience, um, employee experience in your workplace, you could look at um, absentee rates for staff, for example. You could look at, on average, how many sick days are people taking in a year. Um, so that might be one piece of useful information for you. Um, but then you might also have other programs that you offer as optional kind of uptakes and extras for employees. So you might look at the number of people who are engaging with those kinds of programs to see whether or not they are connected to the community and to the workplace. But then you might also do, say, an employee survey to ask them what they think about working in your workplace and what their experiences are. And so rather than relying on just one of those things, it's looking at the trends across all three and making an unbalanced judgment and, and kind of saying, well, actually, you know, we're strong here or not so strong here. And then possibly these are some actions um, that we could take as a result. Great. Thank you. Um, and then if we look at qualitative data, um, and this is something that I'm working on at the moment in a change project where we're gathering data and trying to um, pull out themes. So I found the, the stuff in the book really helpful right now. Can you talk to us about what thematic analysis is and what are some of the ways of collecting data to help with that? Yeah, so qualitative data is all the data, and it's a this is a general rule and it's not perfect, but it's essentially data that's not numerical or it's not a number. So even things like when you survey somebody and you ask them to what extent to the, you, do you agree with this statement, so strongly disagree to strongly agree, that's actually qualitative because there's a, there's a category. It's not a number. Some people try and put numbers to it or they do allocate a quantitative value and, and that's fine. But more often than not, the qualitative data that we work with in our organisations are um, like comments, open-ended comments where, you know, you've asked for customer feedback or, you know, the employee survey, like I mentioned before. And qualitative data is great because it explains a lot of the why behind the numbers. So, 
For example, you think about Google reviews. If you're looking for a restaurant to go and eat tonight, you would go and look at potentially, okay, well, that restaurant's a 4.5 out of 5 and that one's a 3.7 and you might just choose to focus on the quantitative but the comments that people leave is the qualitative information and they give us a reason as to why people might have given us um, one store restaurant a one star. And so thematic analysis is where um, we look through all of those written responses and we look for themes. Again, the clue is kind of in the name, thematic analysis. And we essentially put the different responses into buckets or categories So you might look at a restaurant and people might generally be talking broadly about customer service. They might be talking about the quality of the food. They might be talking about the ambiance and the vibe in the restaurant itself. Um, There's a lot of different kind of themes that they might discuss when they're reviewing a restaurant. So thematic analysis essentially pulls those themes together. So it doesn't matter, you know, if you rate a restaurant and you talk about the customer service and I talk about the customer service, we don't have to use the same exact words, but it might be coded in the same theme. And it kind of does make a quantitative version of the words and of the descriptions, but the things in thematic analysis that appear the most essentially bubble to the top. So if in the one-star reviews, customer service is the thing that is most often talked about, then that would be your priority as, say, the restaurant owner. You'd think, okay, well, the majority of my one-star reviews are talking about the customer service, so my action is going to be informed by that information. So As I said, awesome because it gives us the why and the explanation, but the downside of it is that it's really time-consuming to collect and obviously going through and reading all of those comments or a description of something can take a lot of time. So you really need to make sure it's worth, um, you know, it's worth your while really. And when we're analysing that data, is there one correct way to analyse it? Yeah, is it just keen to kind of understand that analysis piece and different interpretations of that? Yeah, no, there's no perfect way of doing it. Um, There's a model used in research that was written by um, Victoria Braun and Clark. And so if you, I I use that model of thematic analysis. So there's kind of six steps that they propose in their work. And it's used pretty broadly across a number of fields in research. And it was the one that I actually used in my doctorate, which is why I'm most familiar with it. But I also haven't found anything that I like or find as effective because it's pretty straightforward as these six kind of steps. And in my book, I cut that down to four. One of the main things about the process of thematic analysis is like when you go into it, sometimes you might have some of those themes in mind. So going back to the restaurant example, you might have some broad ideas about what those themes might be and might look like. The really important thing through thematic analysis is that you actually need to be open to adapting and modifying those codes as you go because something really different might come up. So you might see that somebody's got issues actually accessing your restaurant and that seems to come up but you didn't anticipate it. So you need to be open to adding to that list of codes. But ultimately, you know, and it's like with quantitative data, you need to be willing to ignore the outliers So if generally people are really positive and you've got a lot of great feedback and you've got one person who had a really bad experience on one day, it doesn't mean that that experience or it doesn't invalidate that experience. But if it's one person, you wouldn't then go and throw all of your time and energy and resources into fixing that one thing if it was 
just one person's experience. So it does kind of allow you, as I said, to look at those things that bubble to the top and the things that come up most frequently and then the action piece, um, looking at those things that appear as challenges, um, the actions should then be attached and tied to them. Right. So I want to talk about uh, what you do once you have data and um, you talk about the importance of visualisation. Uh, I have to admit your book was my first experience of a box graph. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, so just uh, can you describe kind of briefly what sort of visualisation is right for what sort of data? Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of um, rules, for example, like a line graph, for example, should be used for data that is continuous. So if you have data that's quite um, categorical or it's based in kind of whole numbers or categories, you know, you, you should never use a line graph because a line graph implies that one flows into the next. So if you do have those categories or those whole numbers, um, you would want to use a bar graph instead. And those are the two visualisations that we're most um, used to. We see them in the media. We see them on the news when we watch TV at night time, that sort of thing. Other visualisations can be useful. So there's a lot of people out there who actually hate pie charts, um, quite interestingly, and they, but they can be useful. I don't hate them, but I don't believe that they're always used in the best way. Pie charts, for example, should only really be used if you're looking at maybe two or three things. Um, so you don't want a pie chart which, with like 10 to 15 elements in it. You really want to limit it to two or three. Um, and one of the really annoying things that some of the um, spreadsheeting programs do is they allow you to make like 3D versions of pie charts, which is really problematic because that actually completely skews the view. So if you do it, you should be looking at it like a completely flat circle. But then if you wanted to look at in quantitative data, if you wanted to look at the spread of results um, over, like for the whole group of whatever your, you know, your survey or the data collection, it might be across different stores, what their turnover has been um, across all different stores in your franchise network, for example, you might actually choose to use a box and whisker plot because a box plot actually shows the spread. So rather than averaging the sales from hypothetically, if you had 10 stores um, or you had 10 people selling for you, you could get an average score, which is kind of useful, but a box and whisker plot actually shows you the spread. So what was the highest store? What was the lowest? Where's the middle? And where are they generally spread out? So it is kind of about um, thinking, you know, what do you actually want to know? Do you want to know the spread or is an average enough? And then finding the visualization that fits that. Interesting. Thank you. Um, so now we're just going to move on to establishing trends and you talk about story, data, storytelling, data storytelling. So there's two key parts to data storytelling for me. Um, the first part is looking at, well, what does the data tell us? What are the insights that we can see in the information? So once we've understood the data, we've got our visualizations, it's okay. Well, you know, which of those factors are heading to the top of the pile which ones of your or which of your employees are selling the most or whatever it might you know whatever the metric is so the first part of data storytelling is being able to identify those insights and um, there's a really good analogy um, that another author on storytelling with data used and she said looking for insights is kind of like looking at oysters to find the pearls there's so much data. The insights piece is around finding like what actually matters to me and what's useful to me in my role. 
The next part then of storytelling is really the, so what are we doing with it? So we've got the insights, we've got those pearls that have come out of the data. And then the second piece is what am I, what are the actions that are now going to result um, or come about because I know that from the data? And, um, and that's pretty tricky. There's a couple of different elements to that. Um, one of Brent Dykes, who also writes on data storytelling, he talks about the importance of the data itself, the visualisation, but also people communicating and being able to tell a story and, and weave the narrative into that piece as well. Um, but it's really about, you know, and again, it depends whether or not you're looking at this data yourself or with your team or with other people, but it's as a group, it's how can we attach that insight to the practice and the people that we work with on a day-to-day basis and what's the implication for them? Because ultimately we need to be connecting humans to the numbers and the insights that we're collecting um, because humans are the ones that are generating it and humans are the ones that are going to have to act on it. So we can't remove people um, from the process. So any tips for connecting those? Yeah, so I think it's always um, one of the ways you can do that is to think about, well, what's if you were to represent a person, an average person in your organisation, what would they look like? And that, that's, um, again, it's it's problematic. It's useful because it allows us to think about that number as a person or put, putting a face on the person, if you like. It's also problematic because averages are averages and they don't take into consideration that wide uh, range of experience. The other thing I guess would be asking people why they believe that the numbers are like they are. So if you've got those insights and those pearls, being able to sit down with others and say, okay, what's your experience with this? Like, what do you think we could potentially do next? Because we all come to this conversation with really different experiences, different backgrounds, um, different biases, for example. And so all of those things are going to impact not only what we see, but what we think we should do and what we think it means for people. So certainly capitalising on the wisdom in the room um, and asking people about their experience and what they believe can certainly help humanise that for your staff or the people you're working with. Um, I did want to just cover off um, the whole decision-making piece and taking action. And um, there are three concepts in the book that I was keen to explore a little bit more. The first was around solutions-orientated decisions. The second one was being slow and deliberate. And the third was thinking like a scientist. So tell us about those and how you would apply those in practice. So the first one, solutions-oriented decision-making, is often when I work with organisations, the problem is, well, the problem is not that there's a lack of data. The problem is that the data is not necessarily acted on. So really being able to get to the point of knowing which data matters to you, what you value, what you care about, what those insights are, and absolutely humanising them and having that conversation with your team and others about what they mean and what possible actions are. But um, all the research around implementing goals and actions indicates that there's a significant portion of them that fail and that don't kind of make much change in organisations. So um, for me, that solutions piece really sits around, well, how do you plan out your next, might be six to 12 months, it might be three to six months, depending on what your insights are and where you're at um, in your world with these numbers. But even like use a, um, a Gantt chart and literally plan out, well, what's being done by whom and when 
And, you know, one a, um, a leadership team that I worked with a couple of years ago, they Gantt charted, there was actually about 350 actions that the whole team were taking over a six-month period. And every Monday they would come together and meet and they would check off the things that they had said they were going to do by that day. They bumped the things and moved things around when they had to, but they essentially were holding one another accountable because they had an end goal, they had a plan, um, they had all these little kind of incremental steps along the way, but they obviously needed to make sure that they got there and were doing those little bits to, to make the kind of significant change by the end. The second one is around um, thinking slow and fast. And Daniel Kahneman wrote a book on this um, and I love it because he talks about the two systems of thinking that we have. And system one thinking we use about 98% of the time and system one thinking is really quick and automatic and we don't really do much actual thinking. There's not much cognitive load involved. And that's really useful um, for most of the day-to-day decisions that we have to make, but it's not useful when we're actually thinking about major decisions and changes and actions in this space. So even though we might want to spend, or even though we might think that we're pretty good at system two thinking, our brain actually tries to hijack us and goes tries to take the most efficient, the easiest path. So one of the ways I like to do that is um, an activity that I talk about in the book is literally just a three by three grid. So when you're thinking about actions, if there's a few of you independently draw up a three by three grid and write down nine possible actions. And what you'll find is that it's actually quite hard to fill the nine boxes because your system one thinking will work really quickly and you might be able to fill the first four or five like pretty fast, but you then kind of almost hit a brick wall and go, oh, well, I can't get to nine. And so that's actually almost the crossover into system two thinking. So thinking about like, you know, what would somebody else in this position suggest to me? Or if somebody was to walk in right now, what might they recommend that I do? Trying to think outside the box a little bit. The third one is thinking like a scientist. So that comes from Adam Grant's book, uh, Think Again, that he put out last year. And he said that we often think like politicians, prosecutors or preachers. And in all three of those thinking frames, we're not willing to necessarily take on new information or adjust the way that we think or what we think. So he advocates for us to think like scientists, which is where we have a hypothesis we collect evidence, we collect data along the way, um, and we hold on to those opinions, perspectives, whatever they might be, when they're well-researched with conviction and we believe in them, but at the same time, we hold those beliefs pretty lightly and are open to the idea that, you know, science changes over time, ever, like things evolve, um, our understanding of different situations and different things change. And when it comes to using data in organisations, data will sometimes tell you something that's really different to maybe what was true six months ago. So um, however you're using data in your world, it is really important to kind of, as I say, hold those hold those ideas and perspectives with conviction, but also being really open to the fact that things change um, and we can rethink our thinking. Beautiful. I love how you've described those three things. So practical and useful. Um, now, last question is, uh, why did you write this book? What, what motivated you to write this book? Yeah, good question. So I say I'm a data storyteller. Um, I'm also a grounded researcher and I've worked in this space of working with organisations around harnessing and utilising their data well and putting it to work for about the last four years, um, the last kind of two and a half years full time. And 
I guess over time what I've seen is that I tend to work with people who are already bought into this. So people who contact me and approach me, you know, they get it, they want to use numbers, they understand it, they understand it's a priority and it should be a priority. The problem is that they are not necessarily the majority of the organisation that I work with. And it's quite funny. I often have people come to me and say, oh, Selena, I get it, but I'm not a numbers person. <laughs> so um, it's also no longer just the role of the analyst in a business anymore or somebody who's got data written into their role description. Brilliant. And actually, um, there are lots of kind of journalists and communicators like me who say that I'm not a numbers person. So one thing I have found really enlightening and reassuring was actually I'm dealing with data all the time and I didn't really realize it so I, I'm not going to say I'm not a numbers person anymore because I'm dealing with it all the time in various ways so thanks for that <laughs> yes I love that Anna. that's awesome <laughs> thank you so much Selena for joining us that was just a lovely lovely conversation went very quickly so thank you so much On to the I'm not a numbers person take five. One, data is everywhere. We have more data than ever before to inform our decisions. Two, being data literate helps us use evidence to make better decisions. Three, strive to be data informed. Make decisions using data, context and what else you know. Four, understand some basic terms, things like data literacy what quantitative and qualitative data is, and what data visualisation is and does. Five, don't rush to judgmental decisions with data. Slow down when you're examining it. Get others' perspectives and interpretations. That's the books at work, I'm not a numbers person, episode done and dusted. Please send me your feedback or follow books at work on Instagram. I'm Anna Hughes, and that's Books That Work, making work better.